Hi, I'm Rebecca Pete, And I'm Rebecca Cochran. And, and welcome, welcome to Woven, where we strive to be Christians living in the world with intention. And our prayer is that, to paraphrase Mary Zimmer, the Christ who knew Mary and Martha would show us the way of balance. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Um, we're really excited today to introduce you to our guest. Um, you guys probably know them as Sarah and Beth from Pantsuit Politics, and we invited them on. Actually, I I think I started listening to Pantsuit Politics back after a Jen Hatmaker episode. Do you guys remember being on Jen Hatmaker? What was that? Was that in 2018? Oh, I think yes. it was, we very, we've been on there twice, but that's like the most common source of new listeners. So we <laughs> definitely remember it well. <laughs> it's beloved to us. So, so I'm originally from Texas. I'm, I'm an Atlantan transplant. And so as a lot of people in Atlanta are, Rebecca Cochran's actually a true Atlantan. But um, so I'm originally from Texas. So I think the reason why, I mean, I, I listened to Jen anyways, but I think it was, it was the whole Beto O'Rourke piece. So I was like, oh, I'm interested. Mm-hmm. And that's what, and I was like, oh. I so for our woven listeners, um, I was like, oh my gosh, they're having real like political conversations, but doing it in a way where they're still friends that can happen. <laughs> because I love to have political conversations, but I am definitely um, it, it's a struggle, especially in the South, to know how to do that gracefully. So um, I was so pleased to find you guys, and I hope our listeners find you as well because of that. But if you since you're two people like us, if you could introduce yourselves individually, and then our people can know who's who, so they know whose voice is what. So, Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself first? Uh, my name is Sarah Stewart Holland. I am the more liberal, progressive side of pantsuit politics. Um, I grew up in Paducah, Kentucky, went away to school in Lexington at Transylvania University. That's where Beth and I met. We were sorority sisters. And um, then I went away to Washington, D.C. for law school and worked in politics before deciding I did not want to raise uh, a child in Washington, D.C. So I moved back to my hometown of Paducah in 2009 and uh, in, in rapid succession had three boys and did mommy blogging and social media consulting until I found um, myself back in the political space, both because my husband had been harassing me to start a podcast. And so um, I'd been thinking about that. And also because I ran for office in 2015 um, and served a single term on my local city commission. And while I was thinking about starting this podcast, Beth co- uh, co-posted, co-posted, guest posted, there we go, um, <laughs> on my blog. And it was just really well received. And I said, hey, would you ever be consider starting a podcast? And she said, what's a podcast? And I said, don't worry. We'll figure that out. And it started as just a hobby and just um, a fun outlet. And um, then the world gave us Donald Trump and it quickly became much more. <laughs> Talking <laughs> politics with Grace um, uh, became less of a fun experiment, more of a mission. So there you go. So Beth, what about you? So this is Beth Silvers. And when we started, I was the more conservative host in today's universe. It's probably fair to call myself more centrist. Um, If you consider yourself a conservative, you probably will think I'm not conservative enough. If you are progressive, you're going to think that I am like um, extreme right wing sometimes. And so it's just an awkward space that I occupy and I try to just fill it up the best I can um, and not be artificial about it at all. Um, But my background background is in law as well. After we were at Transy, I went to law school. I practiced law 
for six years, and then I ran human resources for my law firm for five, and then started the podcast with Sarah as I was a C-suite human resources officer. Um, And as the podcast grew and as the opportunity to write a book came along, uh, just left it all to pursue the dream of working for myself and doing something more mission-based with Sarah and have just really loved creating Pantsuit Politics and the community of people around it. So um, we're excited to be here talking about all that with y'all today. So I, so I, I'm, so I'm the fangirl for a second. So I'm not only am I into politics, I'm super into Pantsuit Politics and follow regularly and, and all of that stuff. What'd you say, Rebecca? I'm so excited <laughs> So, um, so I know the mission of pantsuit politics, but could you explain a little bit more? You talked about being missional in, um, starting the podcast and, and how it's grown, um, in that capacity. Could you share a little bit about what you guys think is the mission of pantsuit politics? I think it's evolved over time. You know, when we started, we did just want to model something different. We wanted to have the kinds of conversations we couldn't find anywhere because we both love news and politics and just weren't hearing the depth of discussion we were looking for, a discussion where people ask questions and were satisfied without having answers to those questions every time. A lot of, I don't know, what about this? Have you ever thought about it this way? Um, and so that's where we started. I think now we still very much want to model those conversations, um, but also are really driven by this amazing community of people listening, many of whom would say, you're the only political podcast I listen to. You're my primary news source. I've never cared about politics before, and now I do. What's my place in this conversation? Because we're realizing that so many of the people who've never cared about politics before have the kind of ethical sensibility that could change American politics so positively that we just really want to constantly be issuing that invitation. I don't care who you agree with on the show or if you agree with either one of us. If you listen and want to go think and talk about it more, I'm really excited. Yeah. Sarah, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is politics in many ways became entertainment. Um, It became Mm -hmm. a hobby. I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. Um, It was something I was naturally interested in. And so I followed that interest. And because it is often about the exchange of power, I was able to sort of um, insert all this moral value and sort of self-righteous standing into a topic that I was just naturally interested in. Mm-hmm. And um, we all do that, especially people who are sort of naturally inclined to politics. Yeah. And the impact of that is it alienates people who aren't naturally inclined to politics. And it lets people who are like sort of feel superior by just having some baseline information and uh, or following breathless coverage, but not actually participating in any real way. And I think what we really try to do and think about on um, and talk about on Pantsuit Politics is the idea that, you know, this is about how we live in community together. This is about the exchange of power. Um, It has real world impact and it has to go beyond feelings of frustration. Like if, 
if mm-hmm. politics, whether you're just consumed by it or you ignore it, really only ever leads to frustration, then that is very bad for our democracy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, people need to feel empowered in conversation. They need to be empowered, feel empowered in their local governance and processes. They need to feel empowered um, in the ways, other ways, be it voting, running for office, making donations. You know, there's a million different ways to participate in our democracy and people need to feel empowered in that process and trustful of those institutions because what we're experiencing right now is what happens when everyone um, only feels frustrated and distrustful. And it's really, really corrosive on our body politic. And over the long term, um, what we see is people skeptical cynicism or completely um, sort of agnostic when it comes to the process. And that's really dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I find myself right now, I would say agnostic is a great word for it. Um, I wanted to back up a little bit. Y'all said, I mean, you never intended to be people's main news source, I'm assuming. And I just wonder about the pressure of that. Because I mean, we we feel pressure. We're a Christian podcast and we talk about the Bible and we break down theology. And every time we do that, I'm just, I feel that pressure of like, we're kind of speaking on behalf of the Bible to people and they're going to take what we say and like believe it. And I wonder like when you're doing your, you're a news source, that must be kind of terrifying, right? Or is it not? We try to be really clear with people what we are and are not. You know, we are not journalists. And we try to say that as clearly as we can. We try to direct people to our sources Uh um, through our show notes. This is where we got the information that we're talking about. When we get something wrong or later developments happen, we try to make sure that we go back and say, hey, we told you this. Here's what's happened since. Or we said this, but actually that was wrong. Thanks to listener so-and-so who brought that to our attention. Yeah. So we try to be as transparent as possible about how we're gathering information. Certainly, though, it is a lot of pressure to just make good decisions about what you cover to begin with. I think that's been the hardest thing, just deciding what do we even pay attention to? You know, we made a decision pretty early on that we were not going to breathlessly cover the president's tweets. It was just exhausting. It was not helpful to anyone. It was depressing for us. And so we thought that's not where we're going to spend our time. So how do, you know, how do we meaningfully curate what we're going to discuss? That's pressure. Um, How do we discuss it accurately? That's pressure. I think it's really helpful. And I'm sure y'all find this too, that there are two of us um, because our styles of preparing are really different and really (laughs) complimentary. And that helps a lot. It makes me feel a lot of security knowing that Sarah's coming at this from a completely different angle. There aren't two of us um, in like group think going forward on a topic. And so that gives me a sense of security. But more than anything, I just feel such a relationship with our listeners that I um, am able to sink a little bit into, I'm going to do my very best. I feel responsible to these listeners to do my very best. And I also know that there will be some grace there when I get things wrong for the bulk of people who are listening to us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't feel a lot of pressure because of exactly what Beth said. It's not yeah. a consumption model. It's a connection model. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is not a product for people to consume. It's long form. They hear about our personal lives. They hear about our struggles. They hear when we're wrong. They hear us say we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not um, sound bites. These are conversations 
long form conversations that we invite people to connect with, not just um, sell in a consumption model. You know, and I think that's the really big difference is I think a lot of news becomes about consumption. Um, Do I like it? Do I not? As opposed to let's engage on this topic together. Um, Mm -hmm. You know what? That's what I tell people when they ask me about my own personal media diet. I say, you know, the best thing is not feeling like you have to gather every single piece of information or fact so that you can come to a fair conclusion because you're going to be biased just like any reporter or producer or editor. The key is to pick something and stick with it for a while so that you can see the natural ebbs and flows and you can understand the choices they make. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not, you know, if you listen to NPR Up First podcast every morning, or if you listen to my Insta story news brief every morning, you're going to see, I'm not talking about five new news stories every single day. I'm talking about the same story, especially right now, as it evolves. And so you're yeah. going to gain all that information over time. You don't have to go out and gather it all at once. And then you can start to see narratives that you maybe agree with or don't agree with or coverage that you think is fair or different from another day. And that's what, you know, I think happens with us is that people engage with us repeatedly over time. They hear our conversations, they hear our priorities and our values. Um, and so that they, that this, that they're in relationship with us, not just consuming the product. Yeah. yeah. I will say as someone, that, so for our listeners um, who care, um, I would say as someone who cares deeply about politics, cares deeply about current events who used to, before I was a mom with children and an active schedule, I could ingest more and be able to sift more. And what I appreciate about what you guys do is that you're also in the same boat as me and you're sifting through it as well. And of course, it's your more your full-time job. So I know that what's brought to me, I, I think Beth used the word curate. That's I When I share fancy politics with people, it, that's what it is. It's a curation of what is hard for me to grasp from all different angles while I'm trying to do all the things I'm trying to do. Does that make sense? So, so that is what I appreciate um, about Pansy Politics is, is that, that curation, but also knowing that both of you are so different and you're bringing in different takes. And I've actually really appreciated lately um, on your Insta stories that, that you guys are kind of sharing that news role. And more so when it, I think it used to be mostly Sarah um, doing Insta stories and I because I, I like the curation from both ends. So um, I appreciate that. Okay, so we also haven't said, I think you um, slightly mentioned it. You guys are also also authors and you wrote a book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, which I've been out and, you know, in the cul-de-sac reading this six feet away from my neighbors uh, <laughs> the past couple of weeks. And everybody is very attracted to the title. So, um, but can you just, um, I guess, talk for a second about, in the beginning of the book, you talk about, and, and anybody who's in the South will understand this, but in the South, we grew up all hearing, um, you know, there's just certain things you don't talk about at the dinner table, religion, politics, et cetera. We all know what the big ones are. So you talk about that at the beginning of the, the book about how that may not be a helpful way to see political conversation. Can you talk about that a little bit about why you think that's an unhelpful view and what we could do about that? I mean, I think if you like the way our politics are, then we can keep doing that. But I don't think most people do. I don't think most people enjoy the state of our our body politic or the ways in which people engage around politics or treat each other when political um, topics come up in conversation. And I think the reason we wrote the book and honestly, the reason we started the podcast is, you know, it just felt like everybody was out of practice. 
Like we've yeah. forgotten what it was like to just sit down and engage and not try to, you know, come to draft legislation or convert the other person to your side, but to be curious and to understand where the other person was coming from or, or you know, God help us even learn something. And, you know, the idea between behind, you know, we don't talk about it because it's uncomfortable um, just means every time we talk about it, people have to shove more in. They're even more frustrated. They feel silenced from previous conversations. And so it's like an explosion every time it really does come up. And, I, you know, it's not just geographical. It's very gendered. Women are taught to keep people comfortable, to um, keep everybody at the party happy. If something, you know, if something, some sort of conflict comes up, oh, well, you better shut it down because that's really your job. Um, so not only are you be the, are you um, sort of, put in the role of peacemaker, but you're most certainly not invited to the conversation to share um, your opinions or perspectives, which are really valuable. And what we wanted to do is um, just say like, if we don't like where we're at, we're going to have to start doing this again. Um, Not because every single conversation we're going to fix something or come to a compromise or even understand ourselves or the other person better, just because we have to like get in the practice and realize we can do it. It can be hard and the sun can still rise the next day and it'll be okay. Um, And I think that that is, that's, that's the hardest thing to convey to people is they really want all the tools so they can walk into one conversation with a difficult family member and fix it and be done. And it's not going to be like that. Um, it's going to be ongoing. It's going to be um, an ongoing practice and a discipline. And there will be frustrated moments. And there will be moments where you walk away being like, I, I felt silenced. I didn't get to say what I wanted to say or I said it wrong or I reacted in anger when I didn't want to. Um, but that's just part of it. It's just part mm-hmm. of it. It's why we quote um, A League of Their Own at the end of the chapter. The heart is what makes it great. And it is diff- yeah. it is very, very hard. Yeah. Best we ever. Best yeah. movie ever. Is that what you said right <laughs> It's great. There's there's lots of good quotes that come out of that one. Um, yeah, I um, I it's funny because I I grew up in you know growing up in small town Texas. You definitely um, were taught to shy away from those type of conversations. But I also grew up grew up in a household that cared very much about politics. So I was very much torn in both directions. Like I wanted to talk about politics. That's what happened around my dinner table. But then I went out into the world and realized that's not what happens at everybody's dinner table. And so I guess my question is, how can we like tread lightly um, in our communities while still at the same time um, having have grace-filled political conversations and push it forward to the forefront because it's important? Well, we're not advocating that anyone make politics the sole focus of any relationship. Yeah. It shouldn't be the only thing you talk about with anyone in your life. Yeah. Um, if that starts to happen, it is going to break down at some point because there will be some point of disagreement. Even if you mostly have a person where the two of you sit around making each other feel really smart and righteous, um, there will be some point, if that's all you're connecting over, where you'll have a, a breakdown. And you should because we're, we should be human beings who are very complicated mixtures of viewpoints. And so we have a chapter in the book called Put Politics in Its Place. Um, we aren't asking you to bring this to the center of everything. We are just asking you to practice it frequently enough to be good at it. We're asking you not to fear it. Um, and you don't have to start with the hardest conversations in the nation. I think so many people hear politics and think abortion. Mm-hmm. you know, or 
or something equally thorny, something that has they've seen tear family members apart, um, something that touches on their faith or something that feels just really tender to them. You don't have to start there. You know, start by caring about what the school board is doing or what's happening around the sewage system in your community or whatever it is. You know, politics touches so many aspects of life and a little bit of practice where you just routinely are saying, I wonder what the city council is doing about this. I wonder what's going on in our state legislature right now Mm. and have the conversation. Um, Don't fear it. It is easy to start moving into these conversations. I think for a lot of women, this is sort of my default perspective, just as a questioner. Oh, I've never heard anyone say it quite like that. Tell me more. Mm -hmm. And you build so much capital as a listener when you just say that and you're willing to leave it. If you're willing to not be heard in the first conversation, when you're ready to speak, people will be more interested in what you have to say. Now, there's a gendered aspect to that and that will make some women's heads explode and they are not wrong. Um, And so if you are a person who wants to have the conversation, have it and just make sure that you're wrapping enough of the relationship around it. I really Mm -hmm. care about you. Thanks for talking about this. Knowing how to end helps too. You know, how how are we going to get out of this chat once we get into it? Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely noticed for me because I can tend towards that. I can get real excited and um, maybe slightly self-righteous sometimes and um, all the things when it comes to my political perspective. But I I think this idea of like focusing on something that is important to the whole community. So um, in the community that I live in outside of Atlanta, um, for those who are listening who don't know, um, we have, um, there's a massive push amongst all the neighborhoods and the communities to really be there for our public school system. And I have found that it has been a unifying factor um, of people from all different uh, political spectrums. And when I sit down and have those conversations with people about our education and what we're going to do to make our education better, it brings everybody to the table. So I think it's a really smart idea, Beth, of like thinking those local things that you can get around and can start those conversations and not starting with, you know, immigration or whatever. (laughs) Not that that's not an important conversation because it is, but maybe it's not the exact conversation to start with. Um, so I think that our politics and you talk about this in the book have kind of taken on a team mentality. I'm on this team. You're on this team. And I'm a fan of this politician. You're a fan of this politician. And we, we have these divided lines and we're wearing these jerseys and the book, you talk about how to take off the jerseys and, um, how to become a fan, um, versus a follower. And what do you mean? What's the difference between a fan of a politician and a follower of a politician? Well, I think you can be a fan of someone's work and think that they are smart and thoughtful and produce good policy or um, lead in ways that you really connect with and still believe that they are a fallible human being that doesn't have a monopoly on everything that's right in the world. Um, and that you must defend everything they do. I think followers um, really cross into that territory of this person can do no wrong. Yep. Um, this is this is a a common theme I'm finding around my relatives with whom I disagree very passionately about the president. Um, and they often come at me with, you're just blinded by your hatred of him. And I said, I don't hate him and I can list things that I think he's doing right. Can you list things for me that you think have been mistakes? 
and they mm-hmm. cannot do it. Yeah. Um, and that, and they're like, well, you feel the same way about Obama. Oh no, I can list many policies of Barack Obama's <laughs> that I disagreed with and I will happily do so. Can you do the same? And they cannot. Um, so I think that to me is the difference. The idea that they can, that this person can do no wrong. Yeah. It's definitely that safe, that safe. Uh, what would you say, Rebecca? It's like, what, what do you think it is that make, cause I feel like now part of my hesitancy where Rebecca is very enthusiastic to talk about politics. I tend to shy away from it mostly because I have a political nerd husband and I get enough of it at home, but also just because <laughs> I feel like it's not even, I feel unsafe even talking about it a lot of times because I just feel like the minute I open my mouth and say something that someone doesn't agree with, it's like no one's there to listen. It's just, it's mm-hmm. completely knocked down. And so then I just kind of shy away from the whole thing, which mm-hmm. you guys told me is terrible. And I agree with you. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I guess I just don't know what to do about that. And I guess I'm wondering, what do, you, what do y'all think? What is your opinion on, because I feel like people have become our politics now. It's like, it's like, I'm a Democrat and that is everything about me. And that's what you need to know. And like, I, I just don't understand when this shift happened that everybody was who they are politically. It was in the early nineties with Newt Gingrich, but that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a bunch of things. I think that there are issues related to the early nineties and Newt Gingrich and the contract for America. I think the advent of cable news is part of it. I yeah. think the diminishing quality of other institutions in our lives are, are part of it. You know, there are a lot of studies on fewer of us attend church, fewer of us have uh, strong connections to people in our communities. If you live in the suburbs, it's a lot of roll into your garage, close the door, be in your house, open the garage, go to work. You know, you're not as tied um, to where you live as we used to be. So there are a lot of theories about why. I don't know the answer to why decisively, and I'm not sure it's knowable, but I think what we have to recognize is that that identification is the issue. That's the fan follower distinction as well, right? I have put my identity in wanting Elizabeth Warren to be president. I have put my identity in being on the Trump train. I have, you know, whatever it is. And when we do that, there, there is no inquiry anymore. It does. It's not even about problem solving, which is what politics should be. Right. There should be so many issues where it's just a big problem that we're trying to solve. Coronavirus is a perfect encapsulation of that. Yeah. Um, and we've just forgotten how to do it. And we're not able to step back and see that because we're so invested in that identity. And so to me, the work is for people who don't feel that way to get in and start to hold up some mirrors you know, to be the people who say, well, wait a second, like I can see your point, um, friend who wears the MAGA hat, that sometimes the president gets dumped on um, as a as reflexively, right? Without any inquiry, just we're anxious to dump on him. I see that point. I also see the point that there is some, there are some things to dump on. Can we talk about those? Like, If we aren't invested, we are probably the only people who can hold up the lights for folks whose identity is baked into a particular party or a particular candidate or leader. And I think that's hard work that most of us wish we were not called to do. Um, And also, I think we have to ask ourselves really serious questions about what our role is in that work. Because if, if those of us who don't get baked in that way don't get involved... The extreme that we feel we're living now 
will will start to feel mild to us 10 years from now. Um, we were in an extreme polarized place in the late 90s. And think about how quaint that period of time feels compared to what we're living today. <laughs> yeah. But I understand your your hesitation because I know what happens is if you say, I see this point, but I also see this point, is someone who lives and breathes it just buries you in information and just does, oh, but did you know this? And did you know this? And did you see this? And did you read this? And if you're not a person that's a political rat, that's very intimidating. And it's bull. I mean, it's it's just sort of bullying in a way it because it's it, being bullied. I feel like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it feels like you know. Well, you don't really know, so you don't yeah. really have a place in this conversation. I think that happens a lot to women in particular. Is there's this sort of like um, expertise intimidation, which um, and like a real heavy dose of mansplaining sometimes coming from women. So I definitely understand like the hesitation there because if somebody is burying you in a sea of, in a sea of articles or facts or statistics, or did you know, and you can't say, well, I didn't know, but that doesn't sound right to me. Oh, can you give me 15 minutes to go Google it? Well, that's not going to work. Um, and so sometimes the best thing to do in those moments is to, what Beth always says is just to narrate what's happening. What what happens to what this feels like to me is that you are bullying me and implying that I don't know what I'm talking about and therefore I don't have a place in this conversation. Right. And that seems really unfair to me. It seems that I have an important perspective and experience, even if I don't have 15 article links to right. combat every single point that you make. Because we're not really trying to have a point by point debate. What we're trying to do is learn from each other. And well, I yeah. want to learn from your perspective, but you can't learn from me if you shut me down with a list of t- statistics every time I open my mouth. Well, yeah, and article links. I mean, I feel like I can't even get just basic information anymore. So when I do want to learn about something, it's like, I don't even know where to go because everything I feel like is so biased on both ends that I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, it's just, it's so overwhelming. Well, I mean, I think the important thing, we say this all the time is the presence of perspective Um, does not mean that it's unusable information. Mm -hmm. Um, The New York Times and the Washington Post editorial pages have political perspectives, without a doubt. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, journalists, um, the actual reporters doing the work of the news page um, and the news sections of both of those papers and even CNN, um, and USA Today and the AP, all the, they take their jobs real seriously to the point, like if you've hung out reporters, it can be a little obnoxious. Like they have a real um, sort of chip on their shoulder about like, we are reporters, we are reporting the facts. And so I don't think that there is a need to go dig. If you want to learn about something, any of those major media sources will have the information. And if you're seeing information that's not showing up in those media sources, especially like multiple of those media sources, then question it. You know, today I did on our Insta stories a sort of point-by-point rebuttal to a, a story on Tucker Carlson's show that my father had sent to me. And he's like, it's this study and this is what the MIT researcher said. Well, when I Googled the quote from the MIT researcher, like literally just copy and pasted it, nothing came up. 
That is a red flag. Well, something came up, three links of different links to Tucker Carlson. So that's problematic. You know, if I'm not seeing something, the same thing in the Post and the and the New York Times and on CNN or NBC News or The Guardian or Al Jazeera, like that's a problem, right? Um, and so if, you know, you should be able to like sort of quickly see is mm-hmm. every, if they're all covering the same thing, then that's something I need to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's important to remember that almost no one is arguing the facts. We pretend we're arguing the facts, but what we're really arguing is what our values are and where we have put that identity. And so someone trying to shut you down with five blog blog posts that you can't find anywhere else on the internet, that is not about the facts anymore, right? right? That is about that person deciding that mainstream media or liberal media or however they're categorizing it or conservative media, you know, somebody who won't take a story from the news side of Fox seriously. You, what you have is someone who's saying, I just don't trust X. So it doesn't matter what the truth of X is or not. It's about that trust factor. And that's a good door to walk through for a conversation. Well, who would you trust? If you, if you saw definitive information to the contrary of what you're telling me, who would it have to come from for you to believe it? Mm-hmm. And if that person said it, would it matter to you? Would it change how you feel about this topic? Would it change how you feel about this president? Would it change who you're going to vote for? And if not, can we talk about that? <laughs> you know, what is really going on here? I think that's the question to keep probing in these discussions. What's really going on? It is never about what's in the article. I wanted to say also, when you ask, okay, well, why are people acting like that? Why are they so invested? Um, and to best answer about the identity thing, it's not, I think, particularly when it comes to supporters um, of the president or people who are, you know, vehemently, you know, opposed to the president and think he's the second coming of Adolf Hitler. At this point, this many years in and this many controversies in, um, people have made sacrifices on the altar of that belief system. Mm. They have turned away from friends or family members. People have lost jobs. You know, they, it's because the polarized environment requires greater and greater sacrifice sort of on the on the um, altar of that identity, well, that means that if you're asking me to turn from that, then I'm saying everything I've sacrificed up until this point was a waste. If I alienated right. my kids or my grandkids or I lost a job or I broke up with somebody because their politics were different than mine or whatever it is, mm-hmm. then I'm I'm saying all that was a waste. You know, human beings aren't great with confirmation bias in like the easiest of scenarios. Like, you know, there are lab experiments where it's like <laughs> you're just asking them to say the, you know, the orange they ate was rotten. Whatever it is, you know, like l- really low stake stuff and people can't do it because that drive to never admit we were wrong is so strong. And mm. so if you add on top of that this high stakes identity about something that really does matter and really does affect people and has affected you in your personal life and relationships, that is an incredibly heavy lift. Yeah. yeah. So, so we, you just, both of you just brought up the polarization, actually all of us brought up the polarization of our current culture that we live in, which is obvious um, to everyone um, and not a shock to anybody. But um, 
you talk about that a lot of it, I mean, there's a lot of factors that play into that. And a lot of what we talked about, about identity politics and team politics and all sorts of things. But um, also you talk about what you call a grace deficiency. And I'd like to hear what you mean by that. And I also want to know from the two of you with differing political opinions, how, and, but you co-host a podcast together, you work together. I'm assuming you're still friends because you do that. Um, how do you, <laughs> How do you extend that grace to each other that you're talking about? Well, I think that it begins with the idea that we want to be in relationship. You know, Sarah and I want to continue to be friends. We want to continue to host the show together. We were not close friends when we started doing this. We hadn't been in the same room in 13 years. Um, We weren't particularly close when we were in college. We were acquaintances. And so Sarah always says this well, that we were careful with each other when we started because we wanted to build a relationship. And we knew that we had some disagreement. And I think the practice of that, and I hate to keep coming back to practice, but that really is the key to the whole thing. The practice of that took us from, I don't want to alienate this person to, oh, I want to let this difference into my life because it makes me better, because it works on me. Not that it necessarily changes my mind, but it refines me. So where I disagree with Sarah, I get clearer on all the time. Um, But that space of what we disagree on gets smaller too. Mm. It gets both sharper and smaller at the same time. Um, That's really powerful. I'm a better thinker because of the way that Sarah challenges me. And so if you can get past that initial period of, oh my gosh, there's difference and that's uncomfortable. And you have to have a little bit of toughness about this too. I totally understand that feeling of like, I'm being bullied. This isn't safe for me or just this sucks. Like I've had a lot of that experience during COVID-19 where I am kind of putting all my chips on the table about this virus because I think it is the most important thing that's happened while I've been an adult and capable of using my voice, right, politically. And so I have seen family members, friends, people who are just important in my life saying things online that I cannot believe that they're saying. And I have been engaging them on it because this one feels really important to me. Mm. And some of it just sucks. I just leave an interaction feeling so dissatisfied, dreading when I see those folks again in person because it's going to be uncomfortable. Um, And I think that that's part of this process if we don't have that period of this sucks and it's hard, we can't get to the side of, but it makes me better. Mm-hmm. Um, so being willing to feel those feelings is part of the journey. And once you decide, I'm willing to feel whatever comes up in this conversation. So no matter how much Sarah and I disagree, no matter how much I feel like maybe Sarah has mastered this topic better than I have, or maybe Sarah has more experience in this than I do, or whatever it is, I am willing to feel that discomfort because the learning that will come out of it for me will be worth it. And ultimately, that will grow our relationship. Um, And I think that the grace deficiency is all of us being unwilling to feel those feelings at the Mm -hmm. beginning and deciding instead, as soon as it gets uncomfortable, I'm out. So I either lose the relationship or I sit silently resentful in a way that's going to build for a long time about all the things that are going unsaid in this relationship. Because I don't have that sense of just, we both belong here and we belong together, even if there's dissonance around that. 
Well, yeah. and even on the days where you don't feel particularly grace filled, like I didn't in the years, yeah, years. I'm going to go with years after 2016, not towards Beth, but towards many of my fellow Americans. Like, even if I can't lean into the moment, like we all belong and like really have a grace filled moment, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Everybody's not going anywhere. Whatever state you don't like is going to stay. Whatever political viewpoint you don't like, there are no immediate plans to secede from the union. So we're here together. We have to figure it out. Just saying, you're the problem, you're the problem, you're the problem, does not get us any closer to a solution. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to turn the conversation just a little bit, just because since we ha- we are a Christian podcast and most of our listeners kind of lean that direction and care about um, issues of faith, um, you do talk about in the book about um, being involved um, in the political process, and I'm not saying a political party, just putting that out there, but the political process be, being a spiritual imperative. So what would you say, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of um, hatred on both sides out there when we start talking about how faith plays into politics, but faith does play into our politics. So where do you think our faith should have a part in our political process? I mean, I think the the best way to have a political conversation is to have it be really values driven. I just read a really, I'm reading a really great book right now called Say What You Mean. And he talks about the difference. Um, Often in conflict is about strategy. And if you can get to values, it opens up a path in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And politics has become all strategy and therefore all conflict. And we think we have different values, but his, you know, the point of the book is, no, values are universal. So mm-hmm. if you can't find a universal agreement, then you're not talking about values. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I think that there are, there are differing priorities as far as strategy. Um, I lean into the federal government as a top priority as a problem solver. Beth does not. That is fine. She leans into the marketplace as a strategy. I do not. That is fine. That's still strategy because our fundamental values are not different. We want the next generation to be better than the last. We want people to operate with, you know, the most liberty and the most safety that they can as best as those can coexist as diverse a population as we have. Um, We both want to see gun violence reduced. We both, you know, no, we don't argue about whether you just don't care if people die because that's not a fundamental value, right? Everybody cares that about life, even abortion, you know, like nobody hates babies. That's not a value. That's not a human value. Okay. That doesn't exist. We can disagree about strategies, but the value of everybody loves babies and wants babies to be happy is not something that there's a lot of disagreement on. Right. And so I think that really dialing in and people of faith should have that language accessible to them. Mm. That conversation should not be that hard, right? That we can tap in to the fundamental values. It's like I tell people, you know, love your enemy is not complicated. It is not easy, but it is not complicated. There is no exception. And mm-hmm. so that fundamental value of every person is a human um, child of God deserving of basic human dignity is a value that we can always tap into, even if the strategy in that moment is we're in conflict about. Yeah. And so I think that, that orientation to values is something that people of faith 
should have a lot of language about, should have a lot of practice with in theory, um, and can really bring something of value to conversations about politics. And so that fundamental value of love your neighbor, there are no exceptions, applies not only to how we think about where do I fall on a particular political issue or who for whom shall I vote, it also applies to, and how do I talk about this? I am so struck by how many people of faith will use the language of hate when talking mm-hmm. about values. They hate us, or we hate them, or we hate this. I am. I just wish that we could all stop with the hate, um, assuming that someone is hating or, or putting hate out into the world. Love your neighbor means that if I am a Republican, I still love Democrats. If I am vehemently liberal, um, I still love conservatives. We, are, we do not get an exception because something that is political is too important to qualify under the rubric of how we are to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And so I think that is what I would want to drive home the most. You will fall where you fall as you apply the language of your values to those political tactics, strategies, policy proposals. And we will and should end up in very different places about that. It's important that we do. If we were all on the same page, that would lead us away from freedom. So hooray for that spectrum of disagreement, just as we should have it in the church as well. Um, And we as people of faith should be, as Sarah said, uniquely attuned to how to navigate that disagreement, how to get the most out of that disagreement, and how to still come together in spite of that disagreement as people who care about each other. So here on Woven, we talk a lot about, like, even when we were starting the podcast, so it's been, our 100th episode is coming up. Um, Not when this podcast comes out. I hate when hosts do that, and I just did it. But (laughs) it actually is, but when we're recording this, our 100th episode is coming out next week, and and I've I've been reflecting back on it, and one of the things that we um, started off with was um, nuance or finding the gray instead of just black and white, and it was mostly in relation to theology and Christian um, topics. But um, we even played with names that had nuance and and gray matter and all of that kind of stuff as as, um, titles for our podcast. But that I feel like it's something you guys do so well over at Pansu Politics is nuance. And what do you you use that word a lot? And what do you mean by that? What do you mean by nuance in a political situation? Because I think it's very hard. It's so easy for us to go black and white, but it's so hard to be nuanced. I mean, I think when we started the podcast, we meant something different. I think it started It started because Beth wrote a, a guest post for my blog called Hashtag Nuance, um, sort of advocating that maybe we could put that at the end of controversial social media post about Cecil the Lion, because that's how adorable we were in 2015. We were arguing about <laughs> <laughs> So we... It was sort of the idea that I think like there's more to me than than this post. Please don't assume all these things about me. This is not the entirety of my belief system wrapped up in a you know a tweet or a Facebook post. And I think when we started, the idea was like, well, we'll find these places where there's agreement, where there is compromise, um, that it'll sort of be a destination we can reach on topics. And over time, I think what we've realized is it's just a verb. It's just it's it's the willingness to sit where you don't know, where you don't have all the information, where you can't see the outcome, where you're not 100% sure you're right, 
um, where you see areas that you're wrong, but you still can't let go of the opinion itself. I mean, I think that it, it's, it's a journey. It's a, it's a practice not to just keep um, beating that horse, but it's the, it's this, this comfort with the uncomfortable. We like good guys and bad guys, right and wrong, known and unknown, and or decided and undecided. And that's just not a good um, place for politics that must contain the complexities of 300 million people. So um, I think just that willingness to sit with things when there's not... Um, a comforting or easy answer or solution is really what nuance has, has come to mean. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that so much. Um, I feel like at, while this is a, a problem, the, the black and white, good, bad, I'm um, not being able to sit in the uncomfortable space of not knowing is not only an issue in politics is also an issue in the church. And it's always, and that's like one of my soapboxes. So our listeners have heard enough of that soapbox. I don't need to get back on it today. But I, I think um, as people of faith who are wanting to engage in the political process, um, we have to be careful not to bring that same mentality over into our political conversations and our relationships that we're having um, in our communities as we have those political conversations. To If, if we have a desire for nuance, um, discussion in the church, we need to bring that over into politics too. So I love the blend of those two ideas. Um, Rebecca Cochran, do you have any other questions? I kind of want to talk about how most of us are in the moderate middle and just how to sift through that. I mean, I guess I don't really have a specific, not most of us, but a lot of us don't feel like we fit with either extreme and we're kind of just in the middle there. And I guess I wanted to ask y'all, I think a lot of people are like me and that you can hear all sides of a topic, but then I have a hard time once I've heard all the sides, like really being firm in my convictions. Cause I'm also really aware that I only have one perspective. I may not know what's best for everybody. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's, I find a hard time like sticking a stake in the ground with my opinion because I feel like, and I'm not an indecisive person. I, I feel like I sound that way, but I feel like I'm, decent at listening to everybody else but then at the end of the day I struggle to formulate an opinion does that make sense it does and a whole problem it identifies an entire problem in our um, political discourse that you feel like you have to you are not required to, to put a stake in the ground you are not yeah. required to have a strong opinion you can cast a vote from a true like human resources perspective, which of these people do I think is going to go in and pay attention and read briefing books and show up to vote and listen to their constituents? Um, and, and you don't have to care where they fall on really tough votes. So much of the work that people who sit in Congress doing has nothing to do with the hot button issues that they run on. Right. Nothing exactly. to do with it. You know, we try to just dumb everything down to marketing slogans. And so most Americans feel like I am not a good political participant if I can't recite those marketing slogans with passion. But that has so little to do with the work of actually governing. So I say, I don't think it's even the moderate middle to just be a person who says, I'm open. I'm listening. I want to do what makes sense. 
I want to do what makes sense during the circumstances. So how you lead through coronavirus is different than how you needed to lead through 9-11. How you lead in a recession is different than how you lead in an economic boom. Um, We really need people who are willing to just listen and be open. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't render you less informed than anybody else. Sometimes it's going to make you much more informed because you will let ideas in that don't comport with this strong worldview that you have. Um, I think sometimes we are really derogatory of people who would classify themselves as moderate because we're using that word to mean something other than just, I have an open mind. I'm not a person who feels particularly strongly about everything, but I'm listening. And there will be an issue where when a decision needs to be made, I can make that decision. Well, that was very validating. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and I just want to share before we close up, I just want to share the irony that I just got a text message, a political text message on my watch just now for a superior court judge running in my county. I just thought that was funny that as we're recording this, I just got a text message on my watch for that. Um, okay, so where can people find you? What's next for Pantsuit Politics? How do you want people to engage with you on the internet? All of those things. Well, we are primarily, of course, anywhere you can find podcasts. We have two episodes of Pansy Politics every week and a, a politic little, let me start over. And we have a podcast called The Nuanced Life where we sort of contain all our conversations outside politics. People can commemorate important life events or ask us for advice. Um, our primary social media channel is Instagram. I'm there every morning um, providing a news brief in our Insta stories. And we have a weekly email you can subscribe to where we both write up um, what's going on in our lives. And then we are listener supported. And so we have a very active Patreon page where Beth provides um, sort of mini podcasts where she'll deep dive on a subject. And we do, we're do we doing check-ins right near, now every night during COVID-19. And so lots and lots of Pansy Politics content out there if you're looking. Yeah, you guys are some hardworking hardworking women. Um, and we are so appreciative. And we're so thank you for this conversation. Um, I hope that um, our listeners will go and check you guys out, especially as we start a new, oh, well, we haven't started, we're already in the middle of a new political cycle. But um, we have major elections coming up. We're also in the middle of a pandemic. There's so much going on. There's so much news. Um, and so we are grateful for you. We're grateful that you have um chosen this path and have this mission and that you bring pantsuit politics to us every week. So thank you for being on and for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. You're so welcome. Thank you guys. So till next week, we are on Instagram at Woven and Him. We are on Facebook and Patreon forward slash Woven and Him. You can also email us fullywoven at gmail.com. And I'm Rebecca Pete, like the coffee brand. And you can find me at RebeccaPete.com where you can also find all my social handles. Yep. And uh, I don't want to be found. So just find me on the Facebook for our uh, podcast and the Instagram, but not my personal. Bye. Bye.